Father, it is indeed to the old rugged cross that we cling. Uh, we cling. And uh, if we are clinging to anything more than that, we're not clinging to Christ only. We're we're clinging to something man-made and not something you've done. And Father, help us to understand and appreciate and and value the sufficiency of the cross the uh, the the glory and the majesty and the weightiness of your son's atoning death for us on the cross help us father to live in such a way so as to not diminish its value help us to to humble ourselves in such a way that we are humbling ourselves as Jesus did. Help us, Father, to esteem Your glory in accordance with the glory of the resurrected Christ. As we sing about the old rugged cross, Father, we do so with hope that for those in Christ there is indeed a crown. And we thank You for that. We ask these things by the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, beloved, this morning I'm going to do something that may shock you. (laughs) We've been going through Luke ever since I got here, basically, and I want to take the opportunity this week and next to go through two whole books of the Bible. Um, If you will turn to one of the most neglected books of the Bible, these two books are two of the most neglected books of the Bible. They're two of the most applicable, though. And, and and beneficial books for the church, I ask you to turn just a couple pages before Revelation to Second John, Second John, Second John and its sister letter, Third John, are the shortest books in all the Bible. But in the just thirteen verses we're about to read, this letter packs one seriously big punch, and the letter shows us how to put that punch into practice. And the punch is the truth. The truth is what we have to be all about. The truth is paramount to the church. The truth must be treasured by the church. The truth must be practiced by the church. The truth must be loved by the church. And it can never be subjugated to opinions or agendas or anything else because God is the God of truth. And once we start to put truth on the back burner... We're saying, God, I've got a better idea than what you have. And we're putting a God before God. Jesus says, I am the truth. So his body must be about the truth. And yet from the Garden of Eden, Satan is the father of lies. He has tried to convince people not to trust the Word of God. He even tried to convince Jesus not to trust the Word of God. And what did Jesus respond with? Don't you know it is written? And he quoted the word of God to Satan. But the devil has made great headway in our day and age. Today, in many circles, theology is a dirty word. Doctrine is something we don't want to talk about. And few are willing to tell it how it is for fear of offending somebody. And what might happen if that happens. But then... While we may kind of hide the truth under a bushel so as to not offend, we actually are offending someone, and that someone is God. 
Jesus is the one offended when His Lordship over our lives is subjugated to anything else whenever the truth isn't the main thing. And in 2 John, this was written for the very purpose of God's people keeping the main thing the main thing. Keeping truth at the forefront that we might treasure it and proclaim it and study it and live it out. So let's read these 13 verses and pray that by God's grace we might hear what the Spirit has to say to Christ's church. 2 John, The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth, which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. Now before we get to the meat of what we just read, a bit of housekeeping is necessary because no scripture is written in a vacuum The context always matters. So we have to start with who wrote this and to whom it was written. And of course, right away we think John, and we would be right with that, but uh, the name of the letter has been 2 John pretty much for the whole history of the church. It's been universally accepted throughout the history of the church with few exceptions that John is the author of this and the other letters attributed to him in the New Testament. In fact, I'm of the opinion that uh, 2nd and 3rd John were probably written before 1st John, but that's a story for another day. They, those letters are sometimes ordered by length and priority according to that. But what is remarkable is that of all the books attributed to John in the New Testament, when you've got three letters, you've got the Gospel of John, you've got Revelation, he never names himself in any of them. He never calls himself by name, and even here he calls himself the elder. He was old at this point. He was probably writing at least 60 years after the resurrection. So in a sense, the word elder might refer to his age. But more than that, the office of elder is the same as pastor or overseer in the Scripture. Whenever we see the pastor or overseer or elder in Scripture, it's all referring to the same biblical 
church office. And John, he may have been old, but he was still a shepherd. He was still a pastor. He pastored in Ephesus according to church tradition. And as the last living apostle, he still had a role to play in shepherding the entire Christian community, and in particular, those who were receiving this letter. So then, who were they? Well, they were the chosen lady and her children. Some have argued that Paul was writing to a literal woman with literal children. Um, I don't believe that's the case. I think there are several reasons why we can know that he was writing to a church and believers within that church. First of all, the word chosen is a biblical word that refers to everyone whom God will save. Everyone he has saved, everyone he is saving, everyone he will save. Those are called the chosen in Scripture. Uh, The word lady reminds us of our status as the bride of Christ. When he uses the words little children, he often refers to believers he's ministering to as little children. In fact, if you go read 1 John, you're going to find that seven times in that relatively short book, five chapters long, seven times in that book, he calls people little children. Uh, 3 John. We're going to look at 3 John next week, God willing. But 3 John is written to a specific individual named Gaius. And he names Gaius personally. But he doesn't name this chosen lady personally. So that's something to be said for it not being an actual lady. And then at the end, verse 13, we see that the children of your chosen sister greet you. We ask the question, why wouldn't the sister just greet the sister herself? So there are a few very good reasons why we can understand and know that John here was writing to the church. That he was writing to the body of Christ. And it may have been his last words to this particular church. Because he was old. He, this, and so what does that do? It adds gravity. And it adds urgency to whatever it is he has to say. The same way Second Timothy. There's gravity and urgency in Second Timothy because Paul knew he was about to die. The same thing can be said of this letter. The basis of John's letter would be what binds us all together if we're in Christ. It's the commonality that he had with these believers. Those who, according to verse 3, who received what? The same grace, the same mercy, and the same peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Son of the Father. And in what way did they receive this grace, mercy, and peace? In truth. And in love, truth and love. We're going to see those words throughout this book, throughout this short letter. And that being the case, this letter means as much to us today. It means as much to Bethlehem Baptist Church, August 7th, 2016, as it did the church that John wrote to in the late first century. Because you and I, we, if we've truly believed in Christ, We have received that same grace. We have received that same mercy, that same peace from that same God the Father, that same Jesus Christ. And so this is as applicable to us today as it was then. And so then what does God have to say to us through John? Well, first he says in verse 4 that we must walk in truth. You and I, we the church, we must walk in truth. And I say that, and I repeat that, and our response to that should be, duh. Of course we should walk in truth. It should be assumed that we would walk in truth. 
Because after all, 1 Timothy 3.15 says that the church is what? The church is the pillar and the support of the truth. So walking in the truth should absolutely be assumed, but in a day and an age when the Joel Osteens of the world pack stadiums but never open a Bible, never talk about sin, and never hardly ever mention the name of Jesus, how can we assume that? How can we assume walking in truth? It can't be assumed when two-thirds of the 15 million plus people on Southern Baptist membership rolls never show up. It can't be assumed when there are pastors who are praised for the stories and the jokes they tell and the way they make people feel, but not for the Word of God they preach. It can't be assumed that we're walking in truth when so many would-be Christians never open a Bible in a day when biblical illiteracy is a plague upon the professing church. And it can't be assumed when our very own midweek Bible study stays in the single digits. How can you walk in truth when you don't even lace up your shoes? If we begin to comprehend the grace, mercy, and peace God has given us, how can we stay out of His Word? How can we neglect His Word? How can we stay out of the truth? Why are we not immersing ourselves in divine revelation? Why are we not taking advantage of every opportunity we have afforded us to learn more of the Word of God? John was very glad, he says. He rejoiced because this particular church he was writing to, some of them were walking in truth. They weren't just dabbling in it. They weren't just affirming it with their lips. They were living it. They, they were walking. Walking is a patient thing. Walking is a progressive thing. It is a constant thing that you do. Always, they were always walking in truth. It was overflowing from their lives the way it overflows from these first four verses. Did you notice five times in these first four verses we see the word truth? John is trying to get our attention with something, beloved. So a church that doesn't treasure the truth is a church that really cuts its own heart out. Because if Jesus is the truth, and He says, I am the truth in John 14, 6. Jesus is the source of our life. The truth is the source of our life. These believers were walking in the truth. Just as they had received commandment to do from the Father. And just to be clear, the truth isn't what people said. The truth isn't what a majority said. The truth wasn't what the Roman Empire said. The truth wasn't what the Jewish leaders said. The truth wasn't what the Republican Party said or what the United States of America said. The truth wasn't what the Southern Baptist Convention said. The truth was and still is the Word of God. The apostles' teaching. They walked in the truth. They lived by the truth. They obeyed the commands of the Father and John was very glad. It wasn't the church's big budget. It wasn't the church's big numbers that brought him joy. It wasn't that that made him very glad. Note that it was that they treasured doctrine and they wanted to live according to that doctrine. That's what made John very glad. But it's almost as if right after commending them, right after talking about how they they highly viewed the truth, he gives them a hint of warning. Don't separate truth from love. Verse 5, 
Follow the commandment you've had from the beginning. Love one another. And by the way, that's a commandment that not only Jesus talked about, but we see that back in Leviticus chapter 19, to love one another. And why is this a needed reminder? Because, again, love should be assumed in the church too, right? It's good and necessary to love the truth and walk in truth, but if we are, are doing that, we've got to be careful not to get proud in the truth. We've got to be careful not to allow our zeal for being right get to us to a point where we don't love. Paul was talking about this in 1 Corinthians 13.1. He said, I can do all kinds of things. I can prophesy. I can speak in tongues. But if I don't do it with love, I am a loud gong. A loud gong. I am a clanging cymbal. And that is what any professing believer is if they are trying to put truth out with no love in it. And why is that a needed reminder? Because that's just the flesh. It's how we operate. So John, in a fatherly sort of way here, is saying, you have been commanded to walk in truth, and you are. Good. But don't forget to love one another. And how will we love one another? Because we've got to define love if we're going to say we've got to love one another. How does the Bible define love? I'll tell you how the Bible does not define love. The Bible does not define love by saying be nice to one another. The Bible does not define love by saying don't offend somebody else. What does the Bible say? Verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to His commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in it. He's tying truth and love together, And he's saying they are inextricably bound. The Word of God, beloved, is not just a book. It is not just a prop that we carry with us on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights. It is not just an app we download to our phone. It is divine revelation. It is the authoritative mandate for everything we do. It is the authoritative mandate for my faith and for your faith, for how I'm to live, and for how you are to live. It is not an, uh, just a, a book, and it's not enough to say, I believe what the Bible says. The book itself, and John here, is saying, if we believe it, we will do it. If we believe the truth, we will walk in the truth, and we will do so with love. And if love, if we love, we will do it by the Word of God. Love isn't what we say it is. Love isn't what the world says it is. Love isn't an emotion. Love isn't a warm and fuzzy feeling. Love isn't a hug. Love definitely isn't making sure the object of that love is comfortable. You know, it's not my job to love you by making you comfortable. And it's not your job to do that to me either. It's not my job to make you happy either. Because love doesn't always make someone happy. What does love do? What have I said so many times, especially on our Wednesday nights? Love doesn't do what makes someone smile. Love does what is best and what is right for the object of that love. Jesus didn't come to make us smile. Jesus came to save us from our sins. And He offended a lot of people when He did it, by the way, too. And in a sinful world, that's really hard to do. Love is 
hard. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been told to do it so much. Walking in truth with love is exceedingly difficult in a world that is super saturated by all kinds of sins. You know, we are surrounded by a world system that is diametrically opposed to Christ. We might think that we live in the Bible Belt. We might live, think we live in this, this, this culture, the South, where people generally love Jesus. No, they don't. Otherwise, they'd be obeying Him. We live in a world system that is diametrically opposed to Jesus Christ, which does not want to live by what God has said. We, we live in a world then which, in which we are faced with constant temptations to not stick to the truth. We are faced with constant challenges to just kind of don't deny it, but just kind of ignore that part, minimize that part. Don't take that as seriously. Just, just you know, love like the world wants you to love. But it's not just the world that's a concern. Because you and I, we battle our own flesh every day. We, 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 we battle ourselves. Paul, in Romans 7, puts it this way. Oh, sinful, wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of sin and death? He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. What he's, what's he saying there is that even I, an apostle who has seen Christ, I struggle with sin every day. You've got to believe, beloved, that if Paul struggled with sin every day, you are going to struggle with sin every day. And I've said a lot here lately that if you're not in a struggle with your own sin, I fear for your soul. Because it means that the Spirit is not warring against your flesh. And if the Spirit is not warring against your flesh, you may not have the Spirit. We are in an everyday war against sin. Thankfully, Jesus has won that war for us. If we've repented of our sins and if we've entrusted ourselves to Christ, Jesus has won that war for us. So we are saved from the penalty of sin. And by the Spirit, we are saved from the power of sin. We don't have to do it anymore. And one day, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. But until then, by His power, we fight. And it's hard. John keeps saying these things. I mentioned to the Sunday school class that we'd be talking about repetition a lot today. John keeps saying these things, and not just in this letter, but in in 1 John 2. He keeps saying these things. Why? Because we need to know. I have to repeat commands to my children all the time. If you have children, or if you've had children, you have had to do that too. I know you have. Why does He call us little children in the Scriptures? Because He has to repeat these things to us all the time because it's hard and we don't do it. It's hard to love when others are against you. It's hard to love someone when you're being done wrong. It's hard to love someone when they're slandering you. It's hard to love just out of our own pride. Sometimes love seems impossible, which is why we know the truth, and we have to utterly depend on the grace of God to do it. It's impossible apart from God. But all things are possible with God. So don't let the idea of obeying God and loving others intimidate you. 
don't let the idea of obeying God and loving others overwhelm you. Because if you're in Christ, if you believe God's Word, we also have this promise in, in 1 John 5, 3. For those who are in the love of God, His commandments are not burdensome. This is not a weight that Christ can't carry for you. This is not a weight that Christ can't carry for you and drag you along with Him. His commandments are not so burdensome that if you have the Spirit of God in you, you can't obey Him. So we can. It is possible to walk in truth. So then a second thing John tells us to do. We must watch ourselves. We must watch ourselves. Because what does he say in verse 7? Many deceivers have gone out into the world. Now in John's time, in that, that place, in that time, there were these deceivers, and they, in particular they were not acknowledging Jesus as coming in the flesh. They, they were denying that God had become a man. This was the early form of a heresy known as Gnosticism, where they tried to separate the, the, the spirit and the man in Christ, and, and they tried to, well, they, I won't get into all that, but they denied Jesus was the Christ. They denied He was the Messiah. They denied that the Son of God had come as a man. They denied Jesus' atoning death. They denied Jesus' resurrection. And in so doing, what had they done? They had denied the totality of Christian teaching. They had denied the faith. Because you cannot divorce Jesus' humanity for the purpose for which He became human in the first place. To seek and save that which was lost. And so these deceivers, they did deny the teaching of Christ. And they went out into the world and they spread their poison. They denied Jesus was fully God and fully man. They denied that you know He was who He said He was. And if He's not fully God and if He's not fully man, then He could not have been the substitute for our sins on that cross. And if Jesus was not the substitute for our sins on that cross, then we still need salvation. Because we don't have another substitute. He's the only way. Beloved, the reality of deceivers is a life and death matter. You know, we live in a, a Christian world that tolerates false teaching way too much. But deceivers are a life and death matter. In fact, John wrote... This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And the grammar matters there. Even the grammar of Scripture is inspired. He uses the definite articles, the deceiver, the antichrist. So is he saying that every single deceiver is the deceiver? Is he, seeing, is he saying that every single deceiver is the antichrist? No, he's not. But John writes this in such a way as to convey that every single deceiver, every single false teacher, everyone who promotes a lie, they are doing the work of antichrist. They are doing the work of Satan. Let us not gloss over the strong language that John is using here. He is saying that everyone who would deceive God's people... They're all doing the work of the devil. If you try to deceive God's people, beloved, you are doing the work of the devil. If you live in lies, you are doing Satan's work. So we must definitely watch ourselves. 
Watch yourselves, verse 8, that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. That idea of losing, the word there carries the connotation of killing or destroying. Stop. Don't destroy what we have accomplished. Don't destroy it. The church has to keep then the truth at the forefront. The truth has to be vigilant. The truth has to be discerning. Or the church has to be vigilant. The church has to be discerning lest false teaching and false living take root. Lest accommodation become our way rather than obedience. John didn't want the church to fall into error and lose the gospel. I fear, I don't even fear, I know. This morning there are so many places called churches on their sign. But there's not, they're not churches because they don't have the gospel anymore. The glory has departed. And he didn't want a spiritual regression. He didn't want the loss of heavenly rewards. And so he warns them in verse 9, Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. You know, today, many feel we need to move beyond the Bible. The Bible's not getting the job done anymore. We need to move beyond the Bible. Some pastors don't even open their Bibles on Sunday mornings. One area Baptist pastor says he just says what God lays on his heart Saturday night. There's no study there. There's no... That's not to be lauded. Some pastors say... They don't do theology because theology gets in the way of ministry as if you can separate the two. Beloved, if we separate truth from practice, we are abandoning the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. We are denying its sufficiency. We are saying what God has said isn't good enough for us. Which is, by the way, the same sin of the garden. What God said wasn't good enough People do this in the name of progress, but you don't progress past the Word of God. You don't progress beyond Jesus Christ. The late James Montgomery Boyce wrote this. He says, There is a true progress in the Christian life, but it is progress based on a deeper knowledge of the historical, biblical Christ. Progress on any other ground may be called progress, but it is a progress that leaves God behind, and it is therefore no progress at all. He's right. These deceivers in verse 7, they didn't, they didn't flat out oppose the Christian mess. You know, the deceivers today out in our world, they don't say, oh, Jesus is stupid. Why? Because then they wouldn't gain a hearing with anybody. What they do is they tweak it. They tweak the message. They wander away from it. And by the way, that word for deceivers, it means to wander. In the same way, deceivers today, 2016, they call themselves Christians. They get on TV. They sell books that Walmart will sell. They, they, they also gradually move away from biblical truth and replace it with a message that tingles the ears and satisfies the senses. Appeals to the flesh. And they may win a crowd. They may look successful in the eyes of the world. They may have 
multiple services with satellite locations even. But they don't abide in the teaching of Christ. And by the way, that's not me saying all big churches are like that because they're not all like that. I'm just using it as an example. They don't, you know, they call it progress, but if they don't abide in the teaching of Christ, what did John just say to us? They do not have God. They do not have the Father. They do not have the Son. So we must watch ourselves because we don't want to become those people. We don't want to be those people. We mustn't allow false teaching to infiltrate our church lest the work of the gospel be lost or destroyed. We got to walk in the truth. We got to watch ourselves. And third, we must not welcome error. We must not welcome error. And that may sound redundant based on what John's already said. Walk in truth, obey the commandments. It it sounds obvious. Again, it should be assumed. But what John does here in verses 10 and 11 is he gives us a practical way in which we are to live this out. In fact, he shows us a dividing line we have to draw as Christians. and We've got to draw the line, beloved. Verses 10 and 11. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, meaning the apostolic teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. And this is a bigger deal than you might first realize. You know, in the first century, the expectations for hospitality were were different then because then, you know, if you were coming to someone's house, the host was basically guaranteeing that you would receive a, 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 a good standing with the community, that you would be considered worthy by the community. He was putting his own name on the line by welcoming you into his home. And it became customary for churches to offer this kind of hospitality to traveling preachers. And to not offer hospitality was, you know, you're unloving if you don't offer hospitality. But today, if you dare assert someone is a deceiver, if you dare say someone's a false teacher... Working in the spirit of Antichrist, things John says, then you're the one who's unloving. You are the one who's divisive. You are the one who's a hater. Today, the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. To call a spade a spade is to be intolerant. Never mind Elijah. Never mind Jeremiah. Never mind John the Baptist. And oh, yeah, Jesus. Here's the apostles' instructions, and they're so clear. Do not receive the deceiver into your house. Do not give the deceiver a greeting. In other words, don't let their junk into your life. Don't let their junk, don't let their lies infiltrate your home. Fathers, I especially say this to you. Don't let lies infiltrate your home, and don't let lies infiltrate your church. That's what he's telling these people. This plagued the early church that's even worse today. We don't have to have deceivers knock on our doors for them to have a negative impact on us. We just have to turn on the TV. We just have to turn on the, the computer and, and browse the internet. We, false teachers are, are on the radio all the time. 
And yes, sometimes even in our churches, all the more reason we must walk in truth, we must love one another, we must love the truth, we must watch ourselves, we must obey the commandments of the Father, we must heed the teaching of Christ. Don't even give the deceiver a greeting. By the way, that's more than just saying hello to somebody. The word greeting here is more than just saying, how you doing? Godspeed. It's the word karain in Greek. And it's a fairly common Greek word. But for the Christian community, it took on a very important meaning. It became a way that, that people recognized one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how they would greet one another, saying, Karain, greetings. So when John told the church not to give a greeting, he's saying a lot more than don't say hey to this guy. He's saying, don't recognize deceivers as Christians. Don't recognize deceivers as members of the body of Christ. Don't recognize them as members of the church. Don't recognize them as part of the real household of God. Don't give those walking in that sin false comfort. Instead, you know, you do something else. To to give them a greeting is to welcome them into your home, to participate in their evil deeds, to contribute to their ministry of deceit. We can give false teaching, beloved, no quarter, no opportunity, no, 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 no chance to spread division and deception in the body of Christ. Instead, there's only one thing we can do for that type of person, and it's call them to repentance. And not welcome error. And John concludes his letter. It's been a while since we read these verses already. I mean, those... Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made full. The children of your chosen sister greet you. John had more he wanted to say. He wanted to say it face to face. Does that make the things he wrote less important? No, it makes what he wrote more important. This couldn't wait. This was the urgent. This was the most urgent thing he had to tell this church. This could not wait. Truth. Love. Not welcoming or accommodating error in any form. Urgent matters. Beloved, nothing is more important than this. When he saw them, he would tell them other things. But he had to make sure they heard this. This church, this this chosen lady he wrote to, and even Bethlehem Baptist Church, beloved, we must get back to treasuring the truth. We must walk in the truth. We must watch ourselves. We must not welcome error because we, if we love God, we'll do this. If we love people, we'll be willing to tell people, no, you're wrong. That's not the truth. That's not what the Word of God says. And you've got to repent. And we have to do it in love. Not because we're proud. We've got to do it, as Peter says, with gentleness and reverence. And with the authority of the one who has spoken. Because the church is either the pillar and the support of the truth or it's not. And if we don't cling to the truth, the pillars will crumble and everything will come crashing down. So how dare we, who call ourselves the body of Christ, 
not allow what God has said to be first and foremost in how we think, what we say, and every decision we make. If we don't love God, we might masquerade to the world, but God won't be fooled. We'll be judged rightly for our sins, and that judgment is eternity in the lake of fire. Many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? Did we not prophesy in our name? Did we not go to Sunday school every week? Did we not give an offering? Did we not <sighs> fill in the blank? And he'll say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. Why? Because ultimately, that person's life will have not been about the truth. But if we've repented of our sins and if we've entrusted ourselves to Christ because He has been raised, we will receive the forgiveness. Of, we have received the forgiveness of sins. And we have the promise of everlasting life and, and glory with Him. So it's my prayer. Let him who has ears to hear, hear. May the gospel of glory resonate in your heart. May the weight of what Christ has done motivate us to keep the main things the main things. And may we be resolved by that grace and mercy and peace God has given us to live lives that reflect a commitment to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe that means a greater commitment to His Word. Maybe that means a greater commitment to His preaching. Maybe that means a greater commitment to Bible study. Maybe it means a greater commitment to, well, a lot of things, whatever it is. There's not a whole lot of things in the Bible we're told to be zealous for. But His glory is one of them. May we live in a way... May our obedience to His commands reflect a zeal for His glory. And may it be a proper reflection of our hearts, of our lives, and of our church. May we worship the one true God. Let's pray. Father, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the truth ring forth. May Your people embrace it. And in love, obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.